We are in a series that we've entitled The Fugitive. Uh, Looking at the book of Jonah, we'll be in the book of Jonah all the way through, uh, I believe, uh, the month of August. And uh, then we will uh, be moving into our next series. But uh, we're going to be focusing in these next couple months on looking at a prophet who runs away from God. And uh, in the first couple weeks of this series, we've seen that. God gives a message to Jonah, a prophet, to go to the people of Nineveh, which is in modern-day Iraq, and he is to give a message that they are to turn from their wicked ways and follow God. And yet what we see is a man who then makes a decision to run as far away from the presence of God as possible. And so we see a man on the run, but we also see uh, as a parallel uh, to this plot is a God who is in hot pursuit of his child. Now last week we talked about the interaction with the sailors. Jonah gets on the boat uh, as he heads down to Joppa, gets into that port city, finds a ship that's heading out uh, for Tarshish, and uh, we see the downward spiral of sin and how our sin can affect those around us. And we saw how it affected the sailors who were on that uh, ship with Jonah and how God's discipline not only affected Jonah but the sailors as well. And today we look at uh, God's discipline. We look at the most famous part of the passage, Jonah being swallowed up by the great fish or the whale. And we see that God's discipline comes to a head, if you will, uh, in verse 17. Now, with real-life television, a new phenomenon has come up in the last 10 or 15 years. And, And what that is is we get to watch in real time as events take place. Now, that's good for us to know when we see any kind of breaking news take place. We're always very quick to look to see what's going on because whether it's here in Chicago or in the far reaches of our globe, we're able to watch second by second what is happening in a certain part of the world. Now, one of the most favorite uh, times that I enjoy, i got to be honest with you, I enjoy, is when the special report comes up and then the next picture you see is a car on an interstate with a whole bunch of cop cars behind it. I got to tell you, when I see that on TV, I can't turn away from it. I love to watch that hot pursuit take place. I want to see what happens. I want to see what the police are going to do to apprehend uh, this individual. Now, here's the irony of all of it. I don't know of one time that someone who has run away and gotten into a high-speed car chase with the police has ever gotten away, and yet the robbers and the thieves and and the the criminals continue to do it. Not a very smart group of people, because they would know as soon as they've seen any of these car chases that uh, every time they get caught. Well, last fall we were in a, or last, uh, last August we were at an elder retreat, and we had a break, and everybody else goes and prays and looks at nature and creation. Well, I turned on the TV and uh, had my spiritual time, and right then there was a car chase taking place. It was a 45-minute car chase. I used my whole break to watch this car chase happen in Houston. And by the time the car chase was coming to the climax, all the elders are back in the room getting ready to have another session of meetings. And uh, right at the time, we see the car uh, lose both tires because of a tire strip that they had put out to puncture the tires. And the guy uh, crashes into uh, a parked car, gets out of the car, starts running, 
And all of a sudden you see a Houston police uh, car come flying in out of nowhere and he runs the guy right over. I love the response of the news crew and us sitting there. It was the same. It was, ooh, wow. And then the guy says, I don't think he's going to be running anymore. And, uh, and, you know, we look at these things and we say, why would someone be so dumb to think that they could get away from the police? What would make them think that uh, with helicopters all over showing every vantage point of where the person is going, that they think that they can get away from the authorities? And we sit there and we judge them. We sit there and say um, how idiotic it is for them to think that they can do it. Yet we do that all the time. Because we uh, make decisions all the time that tell us and, or we tell ourselves we'll never get caught. God isn't around. He's not watching. But I'll tell you, God isn't just a, a helicopter overhead. God is everywhere at all times and in all ways. And, and we see that in the life of Jonah. Jonah thought he could run away. Jonah was just like that high-speed car chase with the police. And he's sitting there saying, I can get away from God. But just like that man in Houston that we watched during our elder retreat, he not only does not get away, but he gets hurt in the process. And we're going to see that this morning because we come again to that very famous passage where we see a man get caught by God. But usually in those car chases that we've just talked about, what we don't usually hear about is the price that is paid for that kind of law-breaking. I don't know the last time I ever heard anybody say, well, let's give a report. If you remember six months ago, this individual was running away from the law. Here's some footage of it. And this is the punishment that was given. We don't get that inside story of the discipline. We see the crime take place, but very few times do we ever hear about the penalty that was paid. Jonah articulates that to us. He doesn't just show us the downward spiral of that that chase that is going on, but then we see in verse 17 the penalty that comes. Now, we could look at a lot of different uh, vantage points of Jonah and the great fish. But I want you to understand something today. That great fish was a prison for Jonah. It was a prison. It was a prison that involved some aspects of grace, but it also involved some aspects of God's judgment and discipline upon his child. And I want us to look at this, that this morning because we're going to look at God's discipline this morning and how God's discipline involved itself in the life of Jonah and how it involves itself in our lives as well. You may not be gobbled up by a great fish, but God is still judging and dealing with his people. And we need to understand how that is and what is to transpire and what our response is as well. You see, in churches a lot we talk about the love of God and very rarely do we talk about God dealing with us like a loving parent deals with their wayward children. So let's look at uh, this text. We're going to look, uh, let's look at uh, the first chapter starting uh, in verse, uh, let's see here, let's start in verse, let's start in verse 7. It says, then the sailors said to each other, I said you would stand as you do that. Let's look at verse 7. It says, then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us who's responsible for making all this trouble for us. What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? 
Jonah replied, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them and they asked, what have you done? Now they knew that he was running from the Lord because he had already told them so. Now the sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. Let's pray. Father, we have sung a song today that speaks about these ancient words that we read. These ancient words that are to change both the preacher and the congregation. Lord, we ask for that this morning. Lord, we come to one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture. One that uh, no doubt almost every person here is aware of. And yet, Lord, we look so many times at the fish. We look uh, and think about the uh, inside conditions uh, that would be a part of being three days and three nights in the belly of a large fish. And yet, Lord, there is so much more that we can pull from this. There's so much more that we can learn about you and we can learn about ourselves by going just a bit deeper than face value or surface level uh, study. So, Lord, open our hearts today. Uh, Remind us of who you are. Remind us of what we have done and the love that you show us, even when it is a love that will hurt because it comes with the rod of discipline. So, Lord, allow us to apply this to our lives so that we may be greater servants for you and honor you with everything that we do. In Christ's name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. Again, a story that you heard, no doubt, in uh, Sunday school and VBS and and other times. Jonah gets swallowed... uh, famously by a whale. The NIV says a great fish. Now before I get into our outline today, I want to reaffirm some things about the book of Jonah. I want you to understand the book and all that is written in its contents is real. It's true. Jonah was a real man who was called by a real God. He was a man who made a sinful decision to flee from God and God sends a real storm and Jonah is thrown into a real sea. And this is then what takes place. He's swallowed by a real fish. Now you say, Tim, why, why do you say all that? Because this is one of the most, um, objectable or objected uh, passages of scripture in the Bible. Liberal scholars will say that there's no chance, there's no way that a fish could swallow a man. And even if a fish could do that, 
He would never live three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. This is preposterous. And so if this uh, cannot be understood to be a literal event, then we must make it a metaphor for something else. We're not making it a metaphor. We believe with all our heart that this is a true story with real events that have transpired in the life of a real man. And so we believe with all our hearts that Jonah was swallowed uh, by a great fish. Now, I could spend a lot of time talking about the scientific ways uh, that a, uh, a sperm whale or a large fish would be able to swallow a man. I could give you historic references of people that have been swallowed alive and have lived to talk about being swallowed by a great fish. But to do so would remain at the surface, if you will, of the more important lessons that we can pull from this text. There's something that we need to talk about. And that is, why does God send the fish? Why does God put Jonah into the fish's belly for three days and three nights? Jesus would say later in uh, the Gospels of uh, Matthew and Luke, I believe, that this would be a sign that Jesus Christ himself would go into the ground and spend three days and three nights in the grave. It's a sign of a prophecy that was to come. And we'll be dealing with that at the last part of our series, looking how Jonah is connected with Jesus. But today we look at why does this happen? And what we see is, is God in hot pursuit. And we see God's discipline in full uh, flare and uh, exhibiting all that God wants to do in the life of someone who has run away from him. So I want to look at God's discipline this morning and get a more, if you will, inside story to what transpires. To do so, I want to look at four components this morning. I know there's a lot of spaces, but we're going to move through this quickly. The first thing that we need to understand is the practice of God's discipline. The practice. How does God discipline? What are the ways that He does it? What does He allow us to do? What doesn't He allow us to do? We need to understand His game plan for disciplining a rebellious prophet. Now we know in verses 1 through 3 that God gives a command to Jonah. And we are going to come into into understanding the first part of that in the practice. So if you haven't written that down yet, go ahead and write down the practice of God's discipline. The first thing we see about this practice is that God may allow us to choose disobedience. God may allow us to choose disobedience. Look at verse 1 uh, one through 3 of chapter 1. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh, preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But notice what verse 3 says, But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. Jonah disobeys. The God of this universe gives a command. And Jonah hears the command. He knows it's from God. He knows what he's been called to do. And Jonah disobeys. We need to understand something. We choose disobedience. God wasn't going to force Jonah to go to Nineveh against his will, if you will. What God is saying is, I want you to obey me. And Jonah makes a decision that has drastic consequences because he says, no, God, I will not. Now, what God could have done at that moment before Jonah had answered is taken away Jonah's ability to say no. 
What God could have done is God could have, as Jonah starts heading for Joppa, the opposite direction of Nineveh, God could have sat there and, and made sure that every time he tries to go one way, there's a force field, then he has to go uh, to Nineveh. God could have put in any kind of obstacle, any kind of thing that he wanted, but God doesn't do that. Now, God knows and God is aware that Jonah, in turning away from God, will bring great pain to his life. But God allows Jonah to make a decision. And we need to understand that this morning. We need to understand that even uh, for the individual who believes in uh, the most sovereign God possible, that we ourselves still make decisions. That those decisions have consequences. We can't just say that God is moving us around like a puppet, making the decisions for us. We have a decision. And we are blessed when we make a good decision that goes towards obedience. And we uh, find ourselves in great turmoil when we make a decision to disobey God. God says, all right, son, I've given you a, uh, a command and now you have a decision to make. And Jonah makes a decision that grieves the heart of God. Was God aware that Jonah was going to do this? Of course he was. But he's got some lessons that he wants to teach Jonah in the process of saying no. This reminds me a lot of how my parents raised me, especially throughout my teenage years. Many of you know, and it's it's no big uh, surprise to many of you, that I, I wasn't the easiest teenager to corral in uh, in my behavior. And what my parents did was probably the best thing for me. I won't advocate it for all parenting, but for me it worked. And what it was, was my parents were very careful not to put heavy, fe- uh, heavy and tall fences in on me in a small place. Because they knew if they created all these rules and regulations, that what would happen is through a, uh, a teenager that liked to push the limits, that what I would do is pound myself against those fences and inevitably break them and go do what I want to do anyway. So what my parents did early on uh, in my teenage years, would they would establish parameters. They would say, son, this is how you ought to live. Son, this is how you should respond in this situation. But we can't be there every step of the way. We can't be there when every time of temptation comes, when every time your friends tell you to do something. We are going to tell you, here are the principles you must live by. But understand this, in that moment when you make a decision, you're making it on your own. We're not there for you. And when you make a good decision, we believe with all our heart, you will be blessed. You make a bad decision and calamity will come upon you. As a teenager, knowing what my parents had said, and deep down inside knowing that they were right, I would still inevitably make a decision to go against my parents. And yet, you know what would happen? In my heart, I knew calamity was coming. I knew if I, if I was doing something in secret, it would be caught. I knew that if there was something I shouldn't do, I would get hurt. I knew that was going to happen. And it was almost every time that I turned away and did something uh, apart from what my parents had articulated to me, calamity would come. I've shared the story in the fifth grade. One of the first times I, I can remember ever being dishonest to my parents in a, in a real way. I wanted to go to a boy-girl skating party. And I wanted to go because I had uh, in the fifth grade uh, a girl that said she thought I was pretty funny and she would roller skate with me. Well, that, that was all I needed. And my parents said, you're not going to a boy-girl skating party. You're not, you're not old enough for something like that. 
So I lied and told my uh, parents I was going to my friend's house. And I don't know how we did it. It must have been a busy time for my parents because I ain't that smart. But somehow I got them to say yes. And what I had told the parents were on the, uh, of my friends was that you can just pick me up and we can go to the party. And they thought, my parents thought, that the parents were picking me up to take them to their house. Well, I thought I'd gotten away from him. I thought I had figured it all out. And you know the story. I'm roller skating, trying to impress this girl who uh, I never really ever dated or anything. And yet for her, I uh, think I can skate backwards. I tell her I can do that. And in doing so, I break my leg and my parents have to be called. I learned something. You lie, you're going to get caught. And that's how I learned about when to make right decisions and when not to. And yet we still make them, don't we? Even though we know that God has the right plans for us, we make a decision. God could have stopped Jonah every step that he took to Joppa, but he doesn't. Understand this, you may think right now that you are getting away with murder. And God is, and you're saying, well, God didn't see it. Ooh, great, I got away with this one. Understand that God allows you to make decisions. He's always in control, but he allows you to make some decisions. And those decisions have real consequences. Notice the next thing that we see, and that is that God may arrange our circumstances. Now you say, Tim, you're giving a lot of credit to us as humans of controlling our own destiny. I'd say, wait a minute, there's a second point here. And that's the second thread of Jonah. Jonah's making his own decision. He thinks he's getting away from God. But God says, "Uh uh-uh, not so quickly. I've got a say in this. I'm going to be a part of this story. You're not going to flee my presence. I'm going to be wherever you are. You can't get away from me. And not only can you not get away from me, but I am going to be a part of it. I am going to impact your running away from me in a way that you never would have thought possible. Jonah finds himself sleeping in the bottom of the ship. And what happens? A great storm comes. Where did that storm come from? The Bible says from the Lord. The Lord brings about a great uh, storm. He brings about a great wind. Why does he do it? Because he's arranging the circumstance, saying, all right, son, Jonah, you've run for long enough, and now it's time for me to step in. Like a good parent, God will allow his children to make some decisions. But there is a time, just as I remember, there was a time when my parents would say, okay, you've crossed the line, now we get involved. Now we start making some decisions for you. And that's what God does. God begins to work in the life of many different things in our passage from verses 4 through 16 that we learned about last week. He deals with the storm. He allows the ship to stay uh, afloat. He allows the sailors to see God and all that's going on. He forces the sea to do all that it's doing. We learned about the dice that were being thrown that kept falling to Jonah. And we see that all of these could have been coincidence if we didn't believe in God. But God says, I'm the one that brought those things about. This isn't just bad luck, if you will, on the part of Jonah. This is God arranging circumstances. I want you to understand something. When you run away from God, you may think you may get away with it, but God, there is a line where God says, all right, you've rung long enough. I've given you enough rope to hang yourself, and now you're there, now I'm going to pull back on that rope. And that's what God does. And how he does it is by bringing forth circumstances 
that will change our direction. Notice the final thing that we see is that is God may appoint change agents to intervene. God may appoint change agents to intervene. Notice what it says in verse 17. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. Go to the uh, last part of uh, chapter 2 for a moment. Chapter 2, verse 10. This is what it says on the latter part of this prison sentence, if you will. The Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah out onto dry land. Now there's two phrases that are given there that we need to understand. First of all, the Lord provided a fish. I like what the ESV says a little better. I think it's closer to what the Hebrew is trying to articulate, and that is that the Lord appointed a fish. Notice with me for a moment uh, that Jonah is now running away from God. And there's a point where God says, all right, I'm bringing the storm. I need Jonah in the water. I need to get Jonah in the water, number one, because if I allow this storm to keep going on, sailors are going to die. So Jonah needs to be thrown out into the water. But I need to have a place for Jonah to go. We can't have Jonah drown. That's not a part of my plan. He's going to go preach to the Ninevites. I wish I could do it, but I I could only envision him taking his fingers and and his celestial fingers, if you will, and blowing, you know, those high-pitched whistles for like an animal to come. Here, come here, whale. Come here, great fish. Jonah, sick him. Get him. Could you just imagine that? That God's saying, okay, whale, and we don't know where that whale or that fish was from, but he was there at the right moment, at the right time, for a one reason. He was to swallow Jonah. That's what that whale was purposed to do. That's what his job was. And that's what God does. And when three days and three nights are over, he says, all right, you're going to get some indigestion. You're going to vomit him out. Do it now. And he does. It says he commanded him to do it. I wonder what that sounded like to tell a whale to vomit. I don't know, but that's what God tells him to do. And so what we see is, is that yes, Jonah makes decisions and he disobeys and God allows it. But a time comes that God says, I'm going to bring some calamity into your life that is going to shake your foundations and remind you why you can't run away from me. And then I'm going to bring someone who is going to seize hold of you and keep you from running away from me again. And that's what we see in our own discipline. Does God bring a whale? No. A great fish? No. Uh, what does God do? God brings calamities into our life and then he will bring people into our life who will seize us right where we're at. Nathan in the Old Testament is a wonderful example of that. God uses a man named Nathan to go before King David to announce to him that he has sinned greatly before the Lord. And so we see that even though Jonah makes a decision to turn away from God, God is there. That's why I love the parallel between the guy that's running away from the police. Does he know that everybody in the world is watching him? That every right turn he makes, every left turn he makes, they're allowing it. The police are allowing this thing to take place, but they know at a specific time, in a specific way, they're going to catch this guy. They're going to apprehend him, and that's how God deals with us in our discipline. We don't know what God will do, what he will use to seize our hearts, but he says he will. The second thing that we see this morning is the purpose of God's discipline. The purpose of God's discipline. Why does God discipline us? What does he want to accomplish? What is his desired outcome? As we explore God's judgment and discipline in the life of Jonah, 
we see that it accomplishes four things this morning. The first thing we see is rather apparent. Number one, God's discipline uh, rescues Jonah from drowning. We see that it rescues Jonah from drowning. Look at verse 16 for a moment. At uh, Let's see here... Uh, Verse 15, they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Here's what happens. The sea is raging, all kinds of calamity on the sea. And they take Jonah, and they hurl him over into the uh, water, and all of a sudden it says the sea grew calm. Now, how could we say that God is rescuing Jonah from drowning? How can we say that? If the moment he hits the water, everything grows calm. Notice, if you will, look to the second chapter of Jonah. Let's get an eyewitness report of what's going on in the water with Jonah. Notice what he says starting, uh, let's look at starting verse 2. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath me barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit O lord my god when my life was ebbing away i remembered you lord and my prayer rose to you to your holy temple what is he saying there he's telling us what happened in the water he says i went down deep the roots of the mountains is the very bottom of the sea now we know uh, no question that he's in the mediterranean sea which is a large body of water. This is not some 15-foot lake that someone would swim in, but this is deep down, and he is at, finds himself at the bottom of the water. It says seaweed is covering him. He's covered with all the vegetation that is found uh, at the bottom of a body of water. He's drowning. He's drowning, and he doesn't know what to do. He believes that he is going to be left for dead. That's what he believes is going to happen, because he knew that God would end his life for such disobedience. And so God says, you know what? You're not ready to die. I'm not ready for you to die. And it's not your appointed time to die. You're going to go and preach to the Ninevites. And so God allows the storm to continue to go on. I think it is a bit uh, noteworthy, if you will, that the, the sea grows calm for the sailors who aren't being disciplined but it rages on for the one that God's hand of discipline is upon. The chapter with the sailors is done. They've been changed by God. Now God deals with the one he wants to discipline. And it continues to wreak havoc in Jonah's life. So God rescues him. Notice the next thing is to bring about repentance. All throughout the first chapter, we see very little spirituality from Jonah. If we were to just look at the first chapter of Jonah, we'd say, man, why would God even call this man to be a prophet? 
There's no place of prayer in this man's life. There's nowhere where he is uh, willfully evangelizing the lost. In fact, the first prayer and the first um, giving to God of any glory or praise is done by pagan sailors, not the prophet that the story is about. There's no spirituality there. But it only comes as a result of God nearly killing Jonah before he gets on his knees and starts to pray. What a commentary for us as Christians. So many times we find ourselves being the last person that would ever evangelize to people, even though we're called to it. We're the last people to pray when others are praying. And yet when God says you're not understanding, you need to get this through your thick skull. I'm going to show you what uh, displeases me and how your rebellious living uh, is an affront to me. And I'm going to turn up the issues in your life. I'm going to allow them uh, to get a little more difficult. Then we get on our knees and we finally say, oh Lord, let's, let's start talking about things. Oh Lord, let's start dealing with some of these issues. And that's the wrong way to live. And Jonah is an example that we should not wait until things get to their worst that we cry out to God, but we should do it far sooner. Why? Because if Jonah would have had the right life attitude and the right uh, response to God's command in verse 3, he would have never had to go through all these difficult times in verse 4 through 17. And yet this is what happens. God says, all right, I'm going to turn your heart. I'm going to start moving your heart to understand that I am who I say I am and I'm going to do the things I want to do and you can't stop me from doing them. The other aspect of repentance, if you know the the word repentance, literally means an about face. There's a positional repentance that takes place. Remember, Jonah's heading as far west as possible. Nineveh's to the east. He's heading for Tarshish to the west. The Bible says in the book of Jonah that the whale takes Jonah And he throws him up onto dry land. And we know that it probably was in the direction of Nineveh. There's no question that the whale was a transport vehicle to get Jonah back to where he needed to go. And so there's a positional repentance, if you will, that takes place. God is directing the affairs of his children. And he steps in and he intervenes to bring a heart of repentance to Jonah. The next thing we see is it brings about revival to his heart. It brings revival. Without talking too much about this, because we'll be dealing with the entire prayer next week uh, in Jonah chapter 2, I want us to understand that there is a level of revival that takes place. Now, scholars differ on, is this a true revival? Is it that Jonah, after his time within the belly of the fish, makes a decision that, yes, God, it's all about you, and it's all about what you desire, and it's all what you want. I'm going to do exactly what you want. That's one level of scholars. Another group of commentators say that what it really is, is it's a, a timely revival, which means that he makes a decision. Yeah, Lord, I know I can't turn away from you. I know I can't uh, walk away from you and disobey you. But we see later on in the text that Jonah again is fighting with God, that he's angry with God after the revival that takes place in the city of Nineveh. And he gets angry with God that God would show such great compassion and love towards the Ninevite people. And so they say this revival was short-lived. We don't know. Only God knows the heart of a man. It seems through the prayer that Jonah is heartfelt, that he really and truly believes that he needs to turn back to God and that a revival takes place within his heart. 
Whatever it is, we know that God is getting this man's attention. We recognize and understand that God is moving in great ways, in painful ways, to bring about some awareness for Jonah to know who God is and why God interacts with people the way he does. I know this firsthand. I've told you this story numerous times. Uh, during my first year of, of preaching here, uh, I, I started to get prideful. The church was growing. Things were getting more and more healthy. And I, I started to put those on my, uh, on my lapel. Look at the good things that I'm doing. And God said, you know, I don't, I don't remember telling you you were that great. Where, where are you getting this stuff from? Who's writing these press clippings? And I say, it was from the Timbadal Tribune. Didn't you see it, God? And God says, you know what? I'm going to teach you how great you are. I'm going to teach you how good you think you are. I'm going to teach you how successful you think you are. I'm going to deal with you. And what does he do? He brings about a depression in my life that stood for one year. He allowed the devil uh, uh, to bring up lies uh, to me that I fell fell for as soon as they came out. And I became incapacitated for a season of life. And what I learned was, is God said, hey, you want to serve me? Then it's all about me the God of heaven, it's not about you, Tim. So if you want to serve me, you better get that right. And I remember the time that, that I finally found myself at a place of repentance, and I've shared this before, on, uh, on the ground, laid out, crying into the carpet at three o'clock in the morning. And God says, all right, now I've got Tim Bedall where I want him. Now the heavenly herald says, Tim knows where he needs to be, flat, flat down on the ground, praising God. And you know what happened after that night? The depression was gone. It was gone. God brought about revival in the heart of Tim. And it took a time of great pain and suffering, something I never want to go through again. And yet God did it because he wanted to create revival. I matured in that time. I grew during that time. I don't want to ever have it happen again, but I am so glad God allowed it to take place in my life. The final thing that we see is that it's to recommission Jonah. It is to recommission him. We'll look at this in the next couple of weeks, of course. But in chapter 3, we see a second chance that is given. God wants to discipline Jonah. And he does so severely. He severely disciplines Jonah for a reason. But it's only for a season and there's a process. He's looking to Jonah and says, All right, look at what chapter 3 says. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Aren't you glad God is a God of grace? That God didn't say, all right, Jonah, you messed up the first time. You can't get beyond it. I'm going to destroy you. And uh, that'll be the end of the story of Jonah. It'll be one chapter long. And Jonah was swallowed by the whale, never to be seen again because he died. God could have done that. Jonah deserved that and we deserve that as well. But God gives Jonah a second chance. And look at what he says. He says, I want you to go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give. I'm so glad that God didn't disqualify Jonah. God may have allowed Jonah to live. But what he may have said is, you know what? You had your chance, buddy. You could have been a part of the greatest revival of all time. But because you decided to disobey me, that's off. Now I'm going to have you just go and do menial work. You'll never see that kind of evangelism opportunity again. And what does God do? He recommissions him. And he says, all right, I'll give it to you a second time. Some Lord's calling someone today, I know. I thought that would get more laughs. I had the phone call for that reason. No, but... Uh, He recommissions them. How does that happen with us today? 
I've shared, again, this is a rerun of most of my top 10 illustrations. They're a rerun of most of them, but they apply very well. I've told you the story about early on when I was a young child, my dad was attending a church. He was probably about my age that I am now, early 30s. He had three young boys, and he was serving in a church in Aurora, and they were loving what my dad was doing. They were seeing a calling on my dad's life, and they said, Bill, we want to send you to school to be a pastor, and we're going to do all that we can to help support you during this time of going to school. And my dad made a decision. It was kind of the Bill Bedal chapter 1 verse 3 uh, in his life because my dad made a statement and he said, I understand that, that God has gifted me in some ways, but I do see three little boys who all need diapers and who's going to pay for the diapers? And the Lord said, okay, all right, you're not ready yet. You're not ready yet. And my dad had a dream of owning a, a line of grocery stores. He had worked in a large grocery store um, uh, group of uh, business, and he had been very successful with it. But what happens? Not too long after he gets his own grocery store, the dream that he has, the first of many he wanted, uh, the, the company almost goes belly up. He almost finds himself bankrupt. And he finds himself back uh, at the bottom of things, struggling to make a way. And he knows that God is calling him to ministry. This isn't something that happens over a year of time. Fifteen years, my dad struggles to understand his calling with God. And just like Jonah, my dad gets a calling a second time. And my dad hears the voice and he hears it this time. He says, all right, I missed it the first time because of my pride and my arrogance and my desire to do my own thing. And God says, all right, I want you to start serving me again. And 12 years ago, that's exactly what my dad did. He got the second call from God. And it wasn't to, well, just serve in your church in a layman fashion. It was to pastor a church. And that's what he's done. We have opportunities that we say no to God. And God says, all right, you're not ready yet for it. But that doesn't mean God doesn't come back around. Some of you right now find yourself in the discipline of God. And you say, I'll never get beyond it. And I want you to understand, God is a God of second chances. That's what he does with Jonah, and I believe that's what he does to you and I today. He recommissions them. The third point this morning, we see the promises of God's discipline. The promises. Once we see that God deals with us and we understand why he does it, we need to understand uh, some of the promises that come in light of the great difficulty that the discipline brings. In my early years of being a father, I have seen that uh, discipline is one of the most difficult things to do. I thought it would be easy. It seemed easy to my dad. He didn't seem to sweat over it. It just came so naturally to him. And yet I've learned that there is great pain in disciplining uh, my boys. Now, I have two boys right now that are disciplinable, if you will, if that's a word, that uh, are uh, uh, doing things that need to be disciplined. And I will tell you, it is a very difficult thing to do. And I am not a uh, person that uh, uh, has a problem with laying my hands on my children. That's not the issue for me. What it is, is wanting to make sure that whatever discipline I impose, that it's growing them, it's not knocking them down. That whatever it's doing, it's creating something better in them, not creating something worse in them. And so what happens is, as I take my boys and, and we go to the time of discipline, I will see fear and trepidation in their lives. I'll see it on their faces. I'll see it as they're crying and trying to run away from me. And I will tell them, because I don't want them to be afraid of me, I will tell them, come here. And I will begin to share with them words of who I am. 
and words of who they are to me. It happened just a couple days ago with my middle son, Joshua. And Joshua is our passionate boy. He will look you straight in the face and tell you you're the ugliest man in the world. And then the next time he'll say, Daddy, you're so good looking. And he melts your heart. He's a passionate little bugger. Okay? And he got into some trouble. And I needed to discipline him. And he's scared to death. And he's running for his life. And I said, well, this isn't going to do anything. Because all he's going to see is his dad being this big monster. And so I go, Joshua, come here. I want to talk to you. And it takes me, you got to say, come here about 14 times. Come here, come here, come here. He gets over there half an hour later. And I sit him down and I tell him, I love you, Joshua. I love you. And Joshua, not only do I love you, but I want to be the best dad I can be. And I want you to be the best son you can be. And what that means is you can't continue to do the things that you do. And God has put me into your life to discipline you. But I want you to know when I discipline you, I love you and I desire the best for you. And I love the response. He goes, oh, okay, dad, I understand. And I say, okay, now you're going to get spanked. I don't understand. <laughs> and yet we do that as believers. God comes in and he says, I'm going to discipline you. He brings things into our life and we run for our lives. And what we see as God is this monster, this meanie who can come in and destroy our lives because we haven't done anything wrong. We haven't done anything that would merit it. And yet God says, okay, I'm going to be severe in my punishment of you. But what I'm also going to do is share some words of promise so you don't get a bad view of who I am because that's a wrong view of who I am. And so he shares things. And this is what discipline declares to us. Number one, it proves his love for his children. God tells us that he loves us. Well, where does he say it? He tells us in Hebrews chapter 12. Turn there. If you're in Jonah, go into the New Testament to the book of Hebrews, which is in the latter part of the New Testament. And Hebrews chapter 12 is talking on the subject not of God's love, but of God's discipline. Now notice what he says in verses 5 through 8. He says the following, And you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. Well, what's the word? I love you boys, you're the greatest sons in the world, you never do any wrong. No, that's not what he says. Here's the word of encouragement he gives us. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he hates, right? Are we awake? What does he say? He disciplines those he... Why would he do that? Because he punishes everyone he accepts as a son, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined, and everybody undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. My boys have neighbor kids that come over. And uh, a couple of our neighbor kids have, uh, have learned some bad words. And, uh, and I've gotten mad at Noah. Not the bad, bad words. I don't want you to get, you know, the preacher's kids cursing and stuff like that. But just words that are unbecoming of a six-year-old, Okay. And I say, no, we're not going to talk that way. And if I hear you say it again, I'm going to deal with you. The first time, you get a pass. The second time, you're going to get a swift kick in the you-know-where, okay? And uh, nah, that's a little over the top. He's going to get spanked, all right? Get in trouble, okay? You know what Joel, or Joel, what Noah will say? Joel needs a good swift kick in the rear every once in a while. <laughs> 
What Noah? He's going to be listening to this. I'm going to get in trouble. Okay, so what does Noah say to me in that? Well, what about them? Aren't they going to get in trouble? I said, they're not my son. I love you. And I like them. They're, they're good kids. But my responsibility, I'm not their dad. Their dad needs to deal with that. But you're my son, and I love you, and I want you to talk in a way that is becoming of a young man and that it shows the world that you love Jesus Christ. When God disciplines us, what he says, with every spank, if you will, of that spiritual paddle, what God is saying is, you're mine. You're mine. You're mine. I love you. The next thing that we see is that it presents God's thoughts concerning our sin. The very nature that God deals with us tells us, reminds us of what God thinks about sin. If you think you can live however you want and that God's never going to do anything, then you're dead wrong. God is going to deal with us. Why? Because God hates sin. I hate disobedience in the life of my children. Why do I hate it? Because I know that calamity will come when they choose to disobey instead of following mom and dad. Now, there are many times that that, uh, the reprimand that comes is different. When my boys argue about a toy, they will hear a loud voice come from the other room, whether by my, my own or a man does, to tell them to stop doing that. But they know there is something that will come if they do one activity and they know that the punishment will be severe and it will be quick i don't care where we're at i don't care who we are around if my children smart off to my wife they're in trouble now i bring that from being a family of three boys and mom being outnumbered and i have learned this adage you can mess with the king and live but you mess with the queen and you're dead and there have been times my two oldest sons have smarted off to their mothers and they have seen the severity of the punishment that comes. God says, you're going to mess with me. You're going to mess with my commands. There are times I may just yell from heaven and say, hey, cut that out. But at a time when we don't know it to a sin that we're unaware of, that we don't even know that it has been such an affront to God, God deals with us severely, which we'll talk about in the final point. The next thing we see is it produces maturity in believers. Notice again in the book of Hebrews uh, chapter 11. Hebrews chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 12 verse 11 tells us this about what it produces. It says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. What it says is, hey, you're not going to like it. And my kids and I never liked it when I was a kid. We don't like discipline. There's no kid that gets disciplined and says, oh, yeah, daddy, do it again. But you know what? I can stand here at 33 years of age and thank God that my mom and dad disciplined me every time that they thought I needed to be disciplined. I could say that without any question in my heart because I'd never be where I'm at today had they not. And we wouldn't be there if God didn't. And so we have to understand that though it hurts, it produces something, a fruitful harvest of righteousness. It produces maturity in us. The reason why we discipline our children is because we want them to grow up. Not because we want them to stay little kids, because we want them to grow up. And that's why God does it as well. Finally, we see it provides us with a fresh start. Again, we've dealt with this already. But it reminds us that when God disciplines us, he gives us an opportunity for a new beginning. There's a word in Assyrian when I was growing up. The word was vermiyesa. 
I never understood really what vermiesa meant in the Assyrian language, but I knew my grandma would yell that. This little petite Assyrian woman would yell it at the top of her lungs only when my dad was dragging me into a room to get a spanking. And she would yell, vermiesa, vermiesa, Bill, vermiesa. And I'd say, what in the world is she talking about? And so I asked one day, Grandma, what does vermiesa mean? And in a sweet little Middle Eastern accent, she says, not too hard, not too hard. What she's imploring my father to do is don't hit him too hard. Okay, now I learned that that's the grandparents' way of things. My dad, I mean, he really gave it to us at times. And now when I try to spank my children, he, don't you dare look at that child that way, Tim. Don't you dare. Don't you stunt that kid's free spirit. Don't you dare. Next week we'll talk about the hypocrisy of grandparents. But you know what my grandma used to do? I would come out of that room, and, and I know you, you, you've done this, and it's, 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 I don't know what causes it. You get so worked up, you start getting the hiccups, you know, you're crying, <laughs> and then you just go. And, I mean, you just look like you're a mess. And one thing I remember my grandma doing, and I'll tell you, it is the most wonderful picture that I know of, of, of what God can do for us, is after that discipline was done, she would say, okay, Bill, let me have him. And she would take me to the bathroom, and she would get a washcloth and put it under warm water, and she would wipe my face. And she would get the tears all done, and she would look, and she would tell me, I love you, and you are loved by this family. And then what she would do is so incredibly special. She would take us, and she would say, she always, in the Syrian families, were always eating. You can tell the physique, okay? And what she would do is she would tell my grandfather to move from his place at the head of the table, and she would put one of the children there. And she'd say, Tim, you're going to sit at the head of the table. And she said, you're back in the family. Even though you've been spanked, even though you've been disciplined, we love you, we believe God's got good things for you, and you're going to be put in a place of honor. I want to reiterate because it's very important. Yes, God disciplines for a season, but he does it because he loves us. He did it because he did that in the life of Jonah because he loved Jonah, and he wanted to give Jonah a second chance, and he wants to do that for us as well. The final thing is the process. What's the process? Let me take five minutes and let's get this thing knocked out. The process of God's discipline. How does he do it? Does he bring a fish every time? No. We understand this. So how does he do it now in the New Testament time? There are some aspects of God's discipline. The first one is a personal aspect. Well, what's the personal aspect look like? Well, turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. You're not going to see it as clearly in the NIV as you will in other translations, but we'll stick with the NIV and see what the NIV says about it. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. This is what our text tells us. It says, Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather... Train yourself. Other translations say discipline yourself to be godly. Now listen to the illustration that Paul gives. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. The first step of discipline that we have as believers is in our own lives. That we discipline ourselves, we work ourselves over, if you will, to get to a right place of living with God. 
the first step uh, as, a, as a child of God is that I keep track of what I'm doing and I fix the areas of disobedience in my life before God has to. I agree with God before it's time for Him to deal with me. Now we see this uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 and 25. Paul says, I don't want to disqualify myself from the race, so I beat my body. I discipline my body not to fall to the things that will disqualify me in the race with Christ. And so he says, I will beat my body. I'll deal with myself so that God doesn't have to deal with me. The next thing we see is a purifying aspect. Back to Hebrews again, chapter 12, if you just want to listen to that. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10. Notice what he says in this uh, passage on discipline. He says, Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. The idea here is that we, if God isn't helping us and God isn't dealing with the issues of concern that we have, that he sees in our lives, if he doesn't come in and deal with it, we'll never fix it all on our own. So God says, you want to be holy? You want to share in my holiness? Then I'm going to purify you and I'm going to purify you through the rod of discipline. There's a purifying aspect. Susanna Susanna Wesley said this of her 17 children, I believe, that she had. She said, if we fail to discipline our children, we do the work of the devil. But when we discipline our children, we do the work of Almighty God. That is true for parenting, and that's true for us as believers. God is disciplining us because he wants to see us purified. The next, next aspect is the punitive aspect. The punitive, when God disciplines, understand this, he's never vindictive, he's never sinful, but he's, he can punish us, and he can punish us quite severely. We must understand that God deserve, reserves the right to discipline any way he wants for any sin that he wants. We need to understand that. Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira uh, sell a piece of property. They go to the church and they say, hey, we sold this property and what they sold it for, the text doesn't tell us, but let's say they sold it for $15,000. They go to the church and they say, hey, we sold the property for $10,000. They pocketed the other $5,000. So Ananias is there. The apostles ask him about it. He lies. He dies. A couple of moments later, uh, 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 Sapphira, his wife, comes in. They ask her. She doesn't know what happened to Ananias. They ask her the question. She lies. She dies. People are freaked. Holy cow. God just laid two people out dead because they lied. I don't know why. I know I lie a lot. And God's never struck me down. I know there's a lot of lies in my past. And not one time did I ever feel a flutter in my heart that God was taking my life. But with Ananias and Sapphira, dead. First John chapter 5, verse 17 says that there is a sin that will lead to death. What sin is that? I don't know, but there's one, and it leads to death. Stay away from that one. First Corinthians 11, 28 through 32, don't mess around with the Lord's Supper. You start hanging around the Lord's table, being drunk and making a mockery of it. God says some of you are dead because that's what you did. God will go as far as taking your life as a result of your sin. Uh, the one that cl- hits close to home with me, Ephesians 6, 1 through 3, says you need to honor mom and dad. This command comes with a promise. What's the promise? You obey mom and dad, your life will be long. 
and you will enjoy it because there will be a time of, of great peace in your life. Understand this. You mess around as a child. You start rebelling mom and dad. It doesn't mean that's going to happen every time. But I believe with all my heart, my brother died at 16 years of age. And one of the reasons why I believe it, with all my heart, and my family does as well, my brother was a rebellious child to his parents. And he felt true to that promise that God says, you're going to mess with your parents? Then I'll take you up here and I'll deal with you firsthand. The final thing we see is the public aspect. The idea here is church discipline. Matthew 18 tells us that sins are to be brought out into the public. When we don't deal with them, when we don't allow the spirit to deal with them, God says the arm of discipline goes into the life of the church. But why do we air the dirty laundry? There are three reasons why we at Village Bible Church practice church discipline. Number one, write these down. These are important because there will be a time where we will put someone under discipline here and I will tell you it will be one of the most difficult times of leading and following there will ever be. I've never heard of a time where a church has put someone under church discipline and everyone says, yeah, yippee, yeah, he's right on. That's what should have happened. But it's something that we are supposed to do. Here are the three reasons. Number one, to bring restoration to the erring believer. Galatians 6.1, if someone's caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore him, but do it gently, knowing that you uh, ought to be careful, I'm paraphrasing here, because you may fall to that same sin as well. We need to restore believers who err. We need to make sure we help them back to a place of restoration. It's not just punishment, but restoration. Number two, to keep others from sinning. First Corinthians chapter, uh, uh, chapter five talks about an immoral brother who's sleeping with his stepmom and going to church on Sunday and announcing it to the church. And Paul says, kick that guy out of your church. Get rid of him. He is a yeast in this, in this loaf and you need to get rid of him sooner rather than later. Hand the man over to the devil and be done with him. It's a form of church discipline. Why? We don't want it to spread. Finally, it's to protect the purity of the church and to protect the honor of Jesus Christ. We have a name to uphold. His name is Jesus. And when we sin, we put an affront before the people of God and also the people of this world. And the church needs to honor the name of Christ by defending it and protecting it from our own sin. Let me close with this. There's no question that in a time in your life, if you call yourself a child of God, you will be disciplined. You're going to be disciplined. The question is, in that time of discipline, will you submit? If you won't, it's only going to get worse. It could even mean the taking of your life. Jonah got that far. But understand this. When you ask for forgiveness, the Bible says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's what he did in the life, I believe, of Jonah. And he allowed Jonah to go and preach a message of great revival to the people of Nineveh. Just because you're put under God's discipline doesn't mean you're disqualified. What it means is you've got some work to do and God as a loving parent is gonna help you through that process. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Not an easy message. Lord, we don't ever wanna hear about you coming and having to deal with us. But Lord, we're thankful that you do. It shows that you love us. It shows that you care about us. It shows us that you do not want to see us fall to the struggles and the calamity of sin. So Lord, I pray that today, that wherever your hand of discipline may be, that Lord, we would hear it, we would see it, and we would respond to it. That we would not turn from uh, your discipline and run the other way, but that we would embrace it that we would know your love for us and your desire to change us. 
So Lord, I pray that that would happen now, that Lord, we would keep short accounts with you, that we would even be looking at our own lives, disciplining ourselves to godliness and doing that through the word, through prayer, through the fellowship with one another, holding one another accountable so that our sins will not have to be made public and bring an affront to the name of Christ and bring struggles to this church, but that it will be dealt with with you before it becomes too late. Lord, thank you for your word and the example that Jonah gives. We love you and we praise you. Now send us forth from this place with new truth in our hearts that we may live differently from this day forward. Allow us to be a godly witness and a godly testimony in the hours and days before us so that you will be brought glory, honor, and praise. And all God's people said, amen.